when we're looking at moving people, when we're looking at creating things that are transformative, there is vulnerability in that. If you're offering a story, offering an experience, offering part of your identity, then yes, you need to check yourself and say, am I taking a risk here? Is what I'm sharing valuable in the way that I'm sharing it? The last couple of years helped me discover one of my love languages, and that's live music, particularly in outdoor venues. Thank you very much, San Diego. Something happens when I'm in a concert, right? Those parts of me that shut down risk and uh, are cautioning against emotional exposure, they go away and I lose myself in the music. I dance in ways that would probably make my kids cringe with horror. I scream and hoot and holler with joy and abandon. I'm not worried about being misunderstood. I'm not worried about my safety. (laughs) And yes, I do this sober, which may be a surprise to those watching me. And I'm struck how my sense of self-consciousness relaxes and my the protectors, the parts that are always analyzing and trying to keep me safe, give me a little space. I, I feel aligned to what matters most, and I feel deeply inspired with perspective and presence days after the concert. I'm also struck by how the glow of this experience fades and those parts of me that want to shut down risk and uncertainty and emotional exposure, they creep back in, overthinking and doubting. And I look around and see how hard all of our inner risk assessors work to keep us safe, especially right now. Now, like you, I hear and read the hashtag encouragements to speak my truth and be brave with my work and life. And while I value the sentiments behind these encouragements and even say them myself, I also think, yeah, right, no thank you, (laughs) to more risk and exposure in a world that feels primed and ready to critique an attack on repeat. And I also know living in fear of criticism or being misunderstood keeps us small and stuck and stagnant. But the overt push to hashtag be vulnerable as a tool in business and life calls for pause and it calls for some discernment. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with humans who navigate life's challenges and lead in their own ways. Our goal is to learn how they address the burdens they carry, how they learn from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. We all connect with the power of vulnerability in ourselves and in others. And (laughs) vulnerability continues to be misunderstood and misappropriated, especially in marketing businesses and services or political campaigns and legislative agendas and leadership, just to name a few. And when I see vulnerability used with an agenda to acquire more community or brand awareness or social capital, this agenda moves us away from the heart of this courageous state, which is why I want to take a nuanced and deeper dive into vulnerability. (laughs) These days, discerning between true vulnerability and what today's guest calls hashtag vulnerability can become a real challenge. Okay, so what is true vulnerability? Now, Brene Brown defines vulnerability as risk, uncertainty, and emotional exposure, all things that trigger danger to our nervous system. And we all experience vulnerability unless you're a sociopath or a zombie. So if we care and love, we're vulnerable. 
And just about every time vulnerability shows up, our minds and bodies kick into gear to shut it down because the experience brings on intense discomfort. And it's important to note that rarely being in a state of vulnerability is pleasant. And if you can hang in there and move through it, true vulnerability acts as a bridge, a precarious one at times, to so much of what we desire, like love, belonging, creativity, faith, connection, and innovation. Vulnerability is complicated because it rarely feels good, but what leads to the experience of vulnerability is usually good because we're following our integrity, even when there's a lot to lose. Vulnerability becomes a powerful measure for our capacity for discomfort because it feels like, well, it feels like truth. While often your heart races and your palms sweat and your brain frantically plans escape routes while second guessing your choices. Vulnerability can sneak up on us and it can also be a choice. I believe so many people struggle with vulnerability because they struggle with knowing themselves. And over the last two decades, my clients have taught me they know more who they should be than who they really are which lies hidden under these protective masks and the inner risk assessors um, that know how to perform and please and shapeshift. This becomes extra challenging when the expectation to just be vulnerable as a tool to lead and to sell continue to increase. And so this is where hashtag vulnerability often shows up. Hashtag vulnerability involves more calculation and an agenda that uses the gifts of connection vulnerability offers for a specific goal or motive. It understands the power it evokes, and many expect it to be something that it's used to evoke a specific outcome or response. But if we don't have our own clarity of values or clarity of our identity, then the vulnerability expected turns into a commodity to use. Now, okay, so if someone claims vulnerability and shows up all chill or excited, like, I was so vulnerable. That was awesome. I know what just happened was not vulnerability, but something else. And I also know if someone shares something with me, deeply personal or explicit without permission or honoring my boundaries and asking for consent, the share moves away from vulnerability into feeling exploitive and manipulative. So Vulnerability ceases to be present when there is an entitlement to someone's emotions, and that becomes the focus over connection. And the expectation of hashtag vulnerability looks and feels a lot like the emotional exposure component of Brittany Brown's definition of vulnerability, but lacks the presence of real risk and uncertainty. Hashtag vulnerability doesn't take into account the real risks for additional emotional exposure for anyone in marginalized groups or identities, missing the fact that vulnerability is a luxury for many when it's expected as a leadership tool without cultivating safety, trust, and community. It can do great harm and only further burden people. Hashtag vulnerability is also so attractive, even seductive, because it draws us in with stories and experiences that evoke emotion that we feel connected to. And it usually draws the likes and the follows and the shares that so many covet. And hashtag vulnerability becomes less about strength and courage and more exploitive and manipulative. And hashtag vulnerability 
creates a false sense of connection and community and puts the pressure to keep up the emotional exposure at the expense of the connection true vulnerability creates. And I'm concerned about the pressure to be vulnerable because the power it evokes has become, again, coveted by some almost on demand, even though our personal histories are not taken into account with this expectation. And I see many in this vice grip of the pressure to be vulnerable and the pressure to mitigate personal risk so they can meet the expectations of culture at work or the online space and so on. Yet we've become very skilled at masking our risks and have developed a higher and higher tolerance for emotional exposure, which shuts down our capacity for true vulnerability. Leaders need a more nuanced understanding of vulnerability so they can understand and catch hashtag vulnerability. And so they don't fall into the trap of using that and being used by hashtag vulnerability. Our capacity for our tolerance of risk, one of the core tenets of vulnerability, connects to our life experiences, betrayals, personality, temperament, and season of life. And if you want to increase your capacity for true vulnerability, you'll need to up your capacity for this risk, uncertainty, and non-engineered emotional exposure. This requires ongoing work because whenever you do something new, the default to protect or settle for hashtag vulnerability will show up. And I, I believe leaders, when we learn how to better recognize when hashtag vulnerability shows up, we can push back on its use and the harm done. And today's guest digs deep with me into hashtag vulnerability today. Terry McMullen is a writer, podcast producer, who's been making business make sense for small business owners for over 12 years. She's the host of What Works, a podcast about entrepreneurship for humans that's been downloaded over 4 million times. She's also the co-founder of Yellow House and her new book, What Works, a comprehensive framework to change the way we do goal setting just dropped November 2022. And it is such an important book. I bought it for all my clients and many colleagues. It is a thoughtful and essential read. So I hope you check it out. And in our conversation today, listen for the connections Tara makes with vulnerability as social capital. Pay attention to when Tara identifies the role of risk and how hashtag vulnerability often leaves risk out. And notice when Tara discusses the emotional labor involved with vulnerability, especially when it's expected in the spaces we work and lead. All right, now please welcome Tara McMullen to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Welcome, Tara. Well, thanks so much for having me, Rebecca. I'm thrilled to be here and thrilled to be talking about this topic. Me too. I, it's a real honor for me, I have to say. And I'm really excited for this conversation and to see where it goes as we dig into vulnerability and its intersection with with business and work and all of the things. And I'd, I'd love to start off by you walking me through your thought process on how vulnerability has become a form of capital yeah, and how this approach to vulnerability has you know, created new norms and expectations around what we disclose and what's deemed sensitive and personal. Yeah, so there's a few different threads that I wanna pull on how vulnerability or hashtag vulnerability has become a form of capital in the 21st century economy. And I think the first is just to acknowledge that um, individual people are less uh, empowered, economically speaking, today than they were 20 years ago, 40 years ago. 
um, there are fewer ways to either amass the wealth and, and stability necessary to break into the middle class um, or less ways to stay, fewer ways to stay in the middle class as well. Um, so, so there's that piece. We have less access to ways of generating wealth, ways of generating capital, ways of just surviving in our economic system than we had, uh, than our parents had, for instance. Um, so what that means then is that we've learned how to leverage other things as forms of capital in a in a way that then can can help stabilize us right so mm -hmm. one of those things today is social capital now social capital has been a thing for as long as we have known how to use resources to our advantage right which is forever and so social capital really is the practice of understanding how relationships can help us secure what we need to live, right? So, you know, I have a relationship with you, you have a relationship with me. If you need a, a favor, I'm there to offer that. You're there to reciprocate when that time is necessary. And social capital today extends way out from the local community into the global interwebs, right? So social capital mm -hmm. is just all around us now. Uh, and different different people are good at amassing more social capital um, and using the systems that we have to sort of um, I don't want to say hoard social capital because I, I don't think anyone is hoarding it, but you know, having access to social capital, different people are, are really good at accessing it in different ways and using it to their advantage. And that's that's a real leg up in today's economy in terms of creating a feeling of stability, creating actual wealth, creating um, all sorts of needs meeting processes, right? And we see this even with things like GoFundMe or Kickstarter, where people can put these campaigns together and ask friends for help in launching a business or paying medical bills or, you know, the list goes on and on and gets sadder and sadder, right? So that's one way that social capital is being used. And that's one way that, um, you know, vulnerability kind of can create that particular form of capital because vulnerability at its core is a way of relating to others, connecting to others, right? It helps create uh, trust relationships between people and deepens relationships, creates more intimate relationships. And that's a way of banking social capital. So that's one thread. The other thread that I think is really important um, dovetails with that, which is the rise of platform capitalism and social media, right? So social media algorithms are designed to keep people on particular platforms. Facebook wants you to stay on Facebook. Instagram wants you to stay on Instagram. LinkedIn wants you to stay on LinkedIn. And so the way that uh, a post is received uh, determines whether that helps the person viewing it stay on longer. And we know that posts that elicit certain emotions, um, certain kind of high active activation emotions, uh, get more engagement, which means people stay on longer, 
which means social media companies have more ad inventory to sell, et cetera, et cetera. And so what we've learned how to do is create posts that generate those high activation emotions. And so we see this with rage, right? We know rage is a big driver of engagement on social media. Totally. But it happens with other emotions as well. And so that deep feeling of empathy or that that outpouring of support when someone you know, fesses up to something or discloses a particular uh, part of their identity on social media is a driver of engagement, which is a driver of visibility, which is a way to grow an audience, right? And so all of these things benefits not only the social media platforms, but then benefits the brand as well. So now we're taking what was sort of a relationship based social capital, and we're turning it into an algorithm based social capital and building personal brands on that foundation. So those are the two main threads that I think about when I think about vulnerability or hashtag vulnerability as capital. Yeah. So gosh, my brain's going a few different places, but just thinking about there's this hashtag vulnerability, but I guess maybe even I want to dial it back to is there's this sense of I want to create something so I can get the engagement, the Mm -hmm. likes, the follows, the purchases. So I'm going to calculate a story and sharing something. And that feels different than vulnerability and what I've been taught about what vulnerability is. And the other piece I've learned about vulnerability over the years is that people love to see others do it, Mm -hmm. but they don't like to do it themselves. You know, Brene Brown talks about the first thing that we want to see in others and the last thing that we want to show in ourselves. And I feel like this, what you're talking about is it's almost reinforcing, we kind of can jones off of other people's shares, Mm -hmm. but we're not necessarily really sharing unless it's a more calculated share. I don't know what that brings up for you. Yeah, I mean... I do think that there are people that are making those very calculated decisions about what they disclose and how they disclose it on social media to build an audience and to garner support. Mm-hmm. But I think the vast majority of people who are engaging in forms of self-disclosure that have only been normalized in the last five to 10 years are doing so in good faith. Right. They're doing so because um, there is a feeling of solidarity from it. Right. We there is a person we get personal things from it, too. It's not just about gaming the algorithm. I think one of the things about vulnerability kind of broadly defined is that it involves risk and what i've really been interested in is where risk exists on social media and where it does not and for whom Mm. it exists for and for whom it does not right so what we see is a lot of white women with college educations who are you know who fit all of the standard american you know beauty and body standards so they have a very high level of privilege they can appear vulnerable online because that vulnerability has very low risk to them. They can share all sorts of things that we would have never shared 10 years ago. 
Um, but it's not actually risky, right? There is no risk involved. Sure, you might get some unfollows. You might even get some nasty comments, but the benefit outweighs the risk. And, that, sure. and again, that benefit is both social capital and just the personal response of having people support you, which is a wonderful thing that we don't have enough of in daily life, right? Um, mm -hmm. But then on the flip side of that, for less privileged people, for more marginalized identities, there is a greater level of risk in sharing vulnerability as well. And so I think maybe part of what you're getting at with um, we enjoy seeing other people share in that way, we enjoy seeing other people self-disclose in that way, but we are less likely to do it ourselves, is that one component of risk is visibility and size of audience, right? So if um, if I already have, you know, 20,000, 50,000 followers on Instagram, if I lose a couple hundred when I share something that is vulnerable, legitimately vulnerable, it doesn't matter because there's still, you know, 49,800 people who are here for it and supporting me. Whereas someone who's just getting started online or on social media, building an audience is going to be less likely to self-disclose in that way because there is more risk involved. You know, if a couple people, hundred people unfollow you and you only have a couple hundred followers, that's mm -hmm. a problem. So I think there's, I think there's, um, I think the risk dynamic there is an important one to unpack around um, an individual's ability to share. Yeah. And I think it can go both ways too, because I'm thinking there are some other folks that build brands around TMI 24 seven yeah. too. And they're like, this is just me. This is my brand. I'm not holding back. I'm going to share it all. And if, you know, your consent is by you following me yeah. <laughs> or, or, or signing up and, yeah. Yeah. I think those people by and large are almost always early movers on a platform. And that as a platform matures, it is harder to create an audience with that, right? So we see mm. the early vloggers being very transparent and building audiences that way. But people building YouTube channels now are largely building them around a particular premise that is not, I will tell you everything about my life every day, right? Same thing on Instagram, same thing on TikTok. Um, very, very quickly, I think, especially as an, if a new platform starts to rise to the top today, the, the, the user base matures so quickly that you really have to be in that first wave of people signing up if the main thing you have to offer is just TMI. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I guess for me, and, and as you know, and anyone who's who's followed me for a while knows I'm, I'm you know deeply immersed in Brene Brown's yeah. research and working with her and her team for over a decade now and you know defining vulnerability as risk, uncertainty, and emotional exposure. They're a trifecta. And without risk, it's no longer vulnerability. So what is it? What is it then? Is that the hashtag vulnerability yeah. that you're kind of referencing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like calling it hashtag vulnerability, performative vulnerability. Um, a, a friend on on Twitter was just saying it's self-disclosure. Like it's just mm -hmm. saying things that are true about you, um, but without that risk 
component. Um, there really, it really isn't vulnerability. There's no intimacy being built there. I think that's the key. There isn't real intimacy there or relationship building there. It's more transactional. I think that's, that's a really interesting point. Are we really building relationships? Are we really, you know, pushing forward some thought leadership? Um, or is this a transactional thing? I perform and you respond. I don't know. There's something there about the relationship that I think is important. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's a lot of research on the parasociality of the relationships that we build online with the people that we follow, yeah. right? And so a paras yeah. parasocial relationship is by definition a not an intimate relationship, right? There can't be intimacy between one person and 50,000 people, right? You may feel like you know me. You may feel like you get me, that you know all of these, you know, inner workings of my life, but you don't unless mm -hmm. you have met me in person and spent a lot of time with me. And really, you know, there are very few people in my life that know me that way. Yet, if I go to a conference, there's going to be a line of people waiting to talk to me about all sorts of different things that may or may not have anything to do with podcasting or business or goal setting, right? Um, and, and they'll say, you know, I feel like I know you. And I'm like, I've never seen their name. I've never seen their photo before. They're, you know, that's not intimacy. They may feel like they know me. They may feel like what I share is, is vulnerable and open, but that's not really true. That's the nature of a parasocial it's relationship. Fantasy. Yeah. It's, it's fantasy. Yeah. I mean, well, so another thing that Brene says a lot is that vulnerability ceases to be vulnerability without permission and boundaries, mm. right? Permission, like if I just jump in and start sharing you about a childhood trauma, and I didn't check in and say, hey, Tara, I've got something I want to share. Is this a good time? Are you in a space to hold this? I just kind of come in, and I come in hot, and you're like, just got vomited on. Mm. You know, that's not, and I'm still sharing something, that's not vulnerable. And then if you say, you know, hey, Rebecca, actually, no, I, I'm not in a place to receive this. And if I don't respect that, and I just push it, I'm like, well, we've known each other for so long, I should tell you this. Um that's not vulnerability either. It's power over. It's coercive. It's manipulative. And and so I feel like this is where we get into this place too, where I did, and I was just talking to a dear friend of mine too. She's like, I love the mute button on Instagram. It is my best friend <laughs> yeah. because I like these people, but they're sharing stuff that I don't want or need to know. And I'm like, yes, it's your best friend, <laughs> you know, because you may genuinely care about someone or like them or not want to, you know, do the whole unfollow drama or whatever. But I, I do think that I'm, this is gets where it gets murky is where does, you know, vulnerability cease to be vulnerable without permission and boundaries on online or even in our places of work? I'd love your thoughts on that. <sighs> so I think one thing I haven't said yet that I think is this is probably a good time to say it is that I don't think that there are any clear cut answers to this question. I think it's all gray area. <laughs> um, there is <laughs> no like we're not going to get to an answer of how to be vulnerable online without making we're it performative. Gonna... 
We're not going to operationalize. No, it? Oh, no, there's a, no. <laughs> I don't do that. I don't play that game anymore. I just ask questions that have no answers and and enjoy that. So this is a question that has no answer. However, um, I'm really. I, I think I'd probably need a couple of weeks to really dig into the permission piece in terms of how that operates on social media. But um, social media companies have it in their best interest to reduce the amount of permission giving required um, as someone is on a platform. We, mm -hmm. They want to reduce the friction of scrolling to the next post. Right. And we never know what the next post is going to be, even when we have followed someone, um, even when that is sort of the level of consent that we've given. We don't know what they're sharing and we don't know when the platform is going to serve it up to us. And the platforms like it that way because that keeps people scrolling. Mm -hmm. But it also means then that we are bombarded often um, with content that can be really triggering and um, activating. And it's hard often to respond to that, um, I think, in a in a rational way, in a non-reactive way. And again, that's in the platform's best interest as well. And anything that's in the platform's best interest finds a way to become in a personal brand's best interest as well. They don't have the same same goals, they don't have the same means, but we know that the more you can make the platform happy with the content that you put out, the better your content is going to perform. And so anything that is uh, an incentive for the platform becomes an incentive for a personal brand. Okay, so this kind of, you, you riffed on something as we were prepping for this conversation around emotional entitlement. Mm -hmm. And there's something there's something here to, to follow up on is that is that many people feel entitled to know more about you, or the brand, because of and then this is because of their fantasy of their sense of intimacy, their false sense of intimacy, they have a connection for sure. Mm -hmm. But it's it's not true. Relational um, intimacy. But there's something about this entitlement that I've seen take a lot of leaders down. They feel the pressure, like I'm supposed to be there. And there's this expectation to share more, be more, you know, show up more, do more because of this entitlement. Yeah. And I, my sense is you probably experienced that. And maybe and I probably know a lot of people who've experienced that too. Yeah, absolutely. I've definitely experienced it and i've changed a lot of my behavior and 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 you know and business model because of it um another friend of mine uh sarah von bargen has been online as long as i have as well and you know she told me at the end of last year that she was quitting the personal brand game. She no longer wanted to be a person on the internet. She still works for herself. She still works 100% online, um, but she is no longer a person <laughs> that people want mm -hmm. to or can follow online. And it's it's my understanding is that it's for the same reason that the entitlement has gotten so high. And I that that word trips me up a little bit because I I don't I don't want it to feel like I'm complaining about 
followers or totally. shaming followers because I think it's really natural. Again, for the same mm -hmm. reason that you know these platforms incentivize a certain type of behavior, and so people you know, kind of in their own self-interest, but also in the interest, uh, you know, just in the way they're being directed on a platform, they're going to develop that. It's sort of a, it's sort of a, um, a rational, logical response to the, the input that we get from these platforms. Um, but it is really exhausting. Like it's just, it's emotionally exhausting. It's energetically yeah. exhausting. Um, it is a whole form of affective labor and emotional labor that we don't calculate for in terms of our working time. So for individuals uh, like the people I speak to who are independent workers or business owners, those folks are showing up on these platforms in even in hashtag vulnerable ways and not realizing that this platform mm. that's supposed to be enjoyable, even if it's also marketing, is working time, right? You are putting in a massive amount of labor. Um, and I think this is where it sort of maybe starts to dovetail out into the the wider working world as well, because we've def definitely seen over the last 10, 15 years, um, an increase of uh, sort of the professional class talking more about vulnerability at work as well and how uh, fostering relationships and soft skills and all of these things is a real benefit in the office. Um, and that, again, is a form of affective labor, emotional labor, um, and it's a form of work that is in most ways unpaid, but falls under the guise of this is how you do well at your job. Um, and so we don't, we, we have been trained not to notice that kind of work because if we were to get paid for it, no one would be making a profit, <laughs> right? I appreciate you naming that emotional labor because and just the the expect there's something there is an unintentional expectation I may be putting on somebody or someone's putting on me because of their perceived connection mm -hmm. and through kind of a, a parasocial connection and um and that can quickly go dark especially you know obviously in culture it can go like oh especially if someone who's like maybe famous or particularly well off there then is like, you have a lot of money, you have a lot of social clout, so you should do this for me. I see that go dark. And then I see other people like, I don't want to bother you. I don't <laughs> want to be a bother. But I, I, I do think it's something to think about. Some folks don't even show up. They don't even want to enter into mm -hmm. this space because they see it as something that would be a complete suckage. And they're kind of torn like, who am I and who who do you want me to be versus who I am? And it gets a little it gets a little um, murky when marketing becomes like be vulnerable. <laughs> you know, it's kind of a mandate now. Yeah. Well, and that goes back to kind of where I started with, you know, we don't have any sort of assurance that a college education, a more than college education is going to get us a job that makes us feel stable, that meets our needs, uh, that pays down the debt for that education, right? We don't have any assurance of that anymore. We live in, a, in an inherently precarious state 
100% of the time, even for those in the professional class or business owners, there is a ton of precarity. Um, mm. And in that environment, we start to look at what we can leverage to, to start to ease that precarity. And so one of the reasons that then these sort of hashtag vulnerable shares become um, marketing, become a source mm -hmm. of, of business is because it's the one thing we have, right? It's the one thing that I can go to market mm. with. Um, and that's especially true for anyone who's doing work that is immaterial labor, right? So that's service work, uh, emotional work, care work, intellectual work, which is what most of us do now, right? At least probably most people listening to this podcast. Um, and so because we're, we're not producing something tangible, we need to be producing these products of emotion, products of thought, Ooh. products of um, personality that then we can offer in order mm. to get something back from that. You know, I've been thinking about this in this conversation and even reflecting on your support of me with this podcast over the years and even I didn't realize how much I had fallen into maybe some of that kind of way of writing this kind of performative vulnerability mm -hmm. and you would push me like Rebecca there's no no risks here you got no <laughs> stakes here what you're saying and I was like oh you know I, it's like it's almost like this like zombie fog that we've fallen into and I was like oh you're right you know and I'm even thinking of the the podcast that just dropped with uh, Barrett Ward mm -hmm. who's the CEO of Abel who when he decided to say we're gonna we're gonna show our wages even and we're going to show our scorecard with our wages with our company and it's not great and his team really pushed back and said do you want to put us under and he's like we we just have to do this and he's like i didn't sleep well right as he said in the interview um but it was the right thing to do he there was a risk there and i and i think that that is a, a, as as of when you look at risk uncertainty and emotional exposure the risk piece that you're focusing on really is has become a good tell for me um, whether it's in my own work or working with someone else, what are the stakes here? And usually the risk and what move Barrett forward and what moves me forward in my writing or my choices is what are my values, right? Mm -hmm. And, and I, it's like, I can't not be vulnerable because of my values. That's what grounds me in a non-performative or hashtag vulnerability too. Yeah. And I, I think what you bring up here is, is really valuable because it can vary we, in this conversation about hashtag vulnerability, it can become, it can start to sound like it is imperative to actually be vulnerable, to actually take these massive risks. And I don't think that's true. Um, I do think that when we are looking at creating art, when we're looking at moving people, when we're looking at creating things that are transformative, there is vulnerability in that. And so if in those, uh, in that milieu, you are offering part of you, if you're offering a story, offering an experience, offering part of your identity, then yes, we need to, you need to check yourself and say, am I taking a risk here? Am I actually sharing this in a way that 
is truly vulnerable or is truly maybe even vulnerable is not the word, but just like truly connective, like is what I'm sharing valuable in the way that I'm sharing it, um, in, in the truth of how I'm sharing it. But, you know, if you're selling podcasting services, as my husband and I do, um, you don't need to be vulnerable to market that business, right? There is no reason for us to have a social media uh, channel where we're talking about the ins and outs of our marriage, right? Like that would be ridiculous. And yet people get the idea that that's what they're supposed to be doing. So I wanted to, I want to make it clear that there is a time when what we are creating calls for that full truth, that if we decide yes. to share something, it must be fully true. Um, and, and we must share it in that way. And most people do not need to be doing that because they're not creating that kind of thing on a daily basis. And I, I love the tell of what's, what's the intention is where is this? What's the meaning of this? What's the role of this share versus this is what I'm supposed to do? Because we that's like never. That's always a flag. Oh, this is what everyone's doing. That's hard stop or at least a hard <laughs> pause yeah. on that. And, but I appreciate that. And and again, the, the context of you know my writing or what I'm sharing here. That's important to push some of that stuff. And and what's my voice? And I think those are things for mm-hmm. us to discover. Um, but we can have a very private life. And it's not everyone's business. And that's okay. Yeah. Leading is hard. Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence and clarity and calm. Now, I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes vulnerability shuts things down when the stakes seems higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up and doesn't allow for true vulnerability. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protectors of cynicism and inner risk assessors at bay and foster a hope that is both actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead so you can show up with more true vulnerability, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your Unburdened Leader Coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. I want to bring up a book that you turned me on to, and I, I joked, I said it wrecked me in the best of ways. And if you've been in my orbit, 
Um, it's called confidence culture. I can't stop talking about it to everybody or sending it to people. Um, Shani Orgad and Rosalind Gill. And, and, you know, the, the book is called Confidence Culture, and they had some really powerful takes around the intersection, even of vulnerability and confidence. Um, and I'd love for you to talk about what you see as the connection p- between what we're calling hashtag vulnerability and confidence culture. There's actually a quote that I I would love to read from the book that I think encapsulates this really well. So they write, um, there appears to be a curious turn from the self-made woman of the late 1990s and early 2000s and the millennial Wonder Woman who was encouraged to airbrush her insecurities and reframe them as confidence and resilience to celebrating a female subject who foregrounds her pain and vulnerability as a vital asset for success at work. And we can kind of... um, translate that vital asset piece to the social capital piece that I've been talking about. So the asset in this case is a is a form of capital. Um, and like being someone who grew up in the 90s and went to college in the early 2000s and kind of grew up on that, um, what is it, third wave feminism, you know, the very lean in feminism, um, you know, women can do anything that men can and in the same way that men can, right? Like I, I understand that uh, sort of mindset of you know how we're supposed to show up as this highly polished, highly quote unquote professional, um, highly masculinized version of a powerful woman, right? And having worked the last 14 years online i have also seen the rise of this um woman who uh or and people who right it's it's not just women the book is focused on women so that's why we're talking about women here but Mm -hmm. um people who as they say foreground their pain and vulnerability because it's an asset. It is something that can be instrumentalized to get ahead, whether that's on social media, whether it's in the office, whether it's in networking events, you know, after hours, those kinds of things. And I think that in terms of sort of the the paradox of confidence and vulnerability being two sides of the same coin, one of the ways that we could, might think about that is if this hashtag vulnerability is a form of capital, it's an asset at work or an asset for success, something that can be instrumentalized, is that that is a confidence boost, right? To be able to say, well, I've got this story and this story and this story that I know how to use to get ahead. I've got this identity and this identity that I know how to use to get ahead. And white women have been doing that really well for a number of years, right? Um, That's, it is, of course, that's going to be a source of confidence or a particular form of confidence, because now I'm not uh, I'm not devoid of capital. Now I have lots of capital and I know how to use it. I know where to put my investment. Right. That. Yes, that is a form of, of confidence in our 21st century economy. Um, but it's not the same thing as actual vulnerability and it's not the same thing as um, creating intimacy it's not the same thing as forming real relationships it's a 
kind of calculated way of being in order to get what you need to survive. And I, I don't want to, I'm not really interested in tearing people down for doing what they need to do to survive. And, you know, we find all sorts of different ways to cope uh, with that and, and ways of being to make that possible. Um, but I think it's worth interrogating it and looking at, is this, is this really benefiting us or is this just a stopgap? Yeah, you're absolutely right. This isn't to shame or blame or judge because, I mean, until I was reading some of this and without deep interrogation, I was like, oh, crap, I've been swimming at the deep end of this stuff, too. And as much as I stand against it, I was like, I was kind of a, you know, contradicting myself internally and externally. And it's like this performative vulnerability to be performative, conf- confident to survive, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes, and, and then it's like, then we lose ourselves mm-hmm. or... And there's so much harm done in that because people aren't getting to know us. We can lose ourselves. And then there's this expectation, you're not wanted, but an image that I want is what I want. And that's it's explicit and implicit. It it so it's it's a cesspool worth interrogating. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. At least that's been my experience. <laughs> oh no. Um, you cannot unsee it. It's awful. You just go through go through the world and you see it everywhere. <laughs> You see it at Target, you see, anywhere you go, you see it. Um, yeah, I think what you're kind of poking at there is the self-alienation piece, right? And it's I, that I think is where the irony is, right? Because we're we're like showing up as these quote unquote whole human beings on social media, but actually that whole human being is alienated from who we actually are, and that creates a profound sense of instability in one's own identity and, you know, one's own experience. Um, And this is something that Arlie Russell Hochschild talks about in The Managed Heart, where she um, first sort of defines the idea of emotional labor. And she talks about self-alienation as one of the core consequences of continual, uncompensated emotional labor. Um, And she relates it to physical labor in the way that physical labor can alienate one from their own body in that, you know, physical labor often involves injury, right? That you are entering into this territory where you can get hurt, you could lose a finger, there's all sorts of things that could happen. And so your body becomes not yours, essentially, when you're on the job when you're when the work is emotional labor you it's not your body that's not yours it is your entire sense of self yes and i can tell you from experience that that is awful it's awful well i if you're comfortable i'd love to hear about your experience because i know that when people lose themselves with performative vulnerability and this having to be confident and they may not even know they have a choice it drastically impacts our mental well-being, our relational well-being, and our physical well-being because they all are connected. And and yeah, so if there's anything you want to share on that, I'd love to, to hear you t- share more on that. Yeah, you know, my experience with vulnerability and hashtag vulnerability, I think is is pretty, I don't want to say unique, but it's pretty different than the average person's in that I have... Um, a lot of emotional detachment from 
the facts of my life. <laughs> so, um, for instance, and 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 sort of as an explanation for that, and as an example, um, last spring, I started sharing with my audience that I discovered that I was autistic, um, and you know. <laughs> Uh, I, I put it out like in a, in a blog post, uh, well, uh, in an article, a lengthy article. And sh I didn't tell Sean, my husband, what I was doing. Um, I didn't, I was just like, this is a piece of information that has no, like, it's just information. That's how I feel about things like that. Um, he is like, you need to talk to me before you do these things because this is, I don't, I still don't even really know. Like, I just know that I'm supposed to talk about things that other people would perceive as vulnerable, right? Like, that's just, that is just me. <laughs> and so I, there have definitely been things that I've shared over the years on social media where I get messages and comments, oh, your vulnerability is just so refreshing. And, you know, the way that you show up and, and share these things about your life is just so inspiring. And I'm just like, it's information. So I don't have an experience uh, very often of actually sharing something that feels risky because to me facts aren't risky <laughs> but that's my neurology right that's how i'm wired and that's not normal <laughs> um and we well, it's you know, not we, common it's, it's not, not common, common thank you yeah it's not as common and it, what's and what's interesting is people projected oh wow i i wonder if i could have done what shared what tara shared yeah <gasps> you know and also it shows just layers and layers, especially around neurodivergence. But, yeah. um, but I, okay, so then let me ask you this. Do you ever, I mean, the way that you think about this, then do you kind of weigh trade offs when you consider sharing something that does feel vulnerable in your writing or podcast? It's not just information. And how is it, this different for you? No, it's all just information. <laughs> it is all just information. Um, yeah, what? What I what I have really pushed myself to do is become a better storyteller. Think about detail and emotion and scene setting in a in a deeper way. It still does. It's still not vulnerability in the way Brene Brown would define it. Because, like I said, I, there's the emotional exposure facts. isn't there, the risk isn't there, the uncertainty isn't there. Um, it's just facts. But I think that it's a way for me to excavate whether there is emotion there that I haven't processed or that doesn't fit into that facts category. But where I have historically gotten burnt out and self-alienated um, in this world is with having a personal brand around being kind of confident, in control, on top of things, highly observant, um, and having sort of a, a type- And prolific. You're and very prolific, prolific in, your, in your creating. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and having a personality that I wouldn't necessarily um, classify as charismatic, but certainly a personality that is authoritative and tends to bring people in under that 
um, sort of umbrella of uh, just being authoritative and and having power in what I what I say and the way I say it. Um, and what I find is that as that takes its toll on me because I'm not always the person, like I'm very good at performing the person who sounds powerful and authoritative, right? That's that's a, one of the ways that I mask a lot of what's going on behind the scenes. Um, as I do that more and more, and as new challenges come up around that, that's when I start to feel that split with my sense of self, where there's the yeah. me that's out there that is what everyone expects. It's that um, that emotional entitlement piece again, not in a, not in a, a way that like it's not. No one is wrong <laughs> for expecting that they are a hundred percent right, and also I can't always perform that uh, in a way that is safe for me uh, in terms of like mental health and, you know, my own capacity. Um, so that's where I tend to get tripped up. Like I can remember last summer when I was really at a, a pretty significant low point um, while we were out in Montana, hopping on a client call this happened several times, actually, hopping on a client call and going from being in tears to, you know, wiping my face and turning Zoom on and saying, hi, how are you? And not being able, like looking at myself on the screen, looking, hearing my voice and not feeling like that person was me, right? Like that that amount of self-alienation, that amount of just detachment from the performance of it. Um, and so that's the particular way that I experience that. But I think, you know, just from having talked to so many people who are in the same line of work over the years, I think that same thing happens with that sort of a hashtag vulnerability and just personal brand building in general um, on social media. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I, I have a feeling people are going to relate a lot with that. However, they got there. Yeah. Um, that detachment. Because um, uh, I'm hearing that a lot, a lot from people. Um, we, we know how to perform until we can't. Yes. Until our bodies and our well-being doesn't let us. So you have a book that it had just dropped and I am sending it to all my clients. Excellent. <laughs> Very this excited. is what I like to They're, hear. Their Christmas present this year, their holiday present this year. Um, so I, I want to talk a little bit. And, and so maybe even with your vulnerability might not even be the best word, but even just, you know, how does your capacity, whether it's for vulnerability, whether it's for your bandwidth, um, how you're showing up, your even your capacity in connection to yourself, how does that impact how you set goals and use your time? Yeah. So this is a great question. And this really, this is sort of at the heart of, of the, the book. Um, for me, it is understanding that my emotional capacity and energetic capacity is, needs to be a bigger part of the equation 
than how much time I have or how much money I have. So uh, in the book, I talk about capacity as really multidimensional, right? We, we tend to think like, do I have enough time for this? Or like, is this worth the money, right? Those are the kinds of questions that we tend to ask around capacity and resources. But I want us to look at time, money, skills, relationships, uh, emotional bandwidth, mental health, physical health, all of the things, all of the things that have the potential to either buoy us up or deplete us, right? Um, and so for me, I've recognized that, okay, emotional uh, energy and, um, and, all, and all of the things that go with that, like that needs to be the thing that I am most careful about all the time. As you said, I work really fast. I make a lot of stuff like producing things is not a problem for me. So time, time isn't actually ever a problem for me in the way of like what I actually have to get done. Time is a problem for all the things I'd also like to get done. <laughs> um, but it's not, it's not a real problem in terms of how I fit things in. What is extremely challenging for me is anything that is relational. So anything that is show like this, anything that's showing up in front of my webcam, in front of my microphone and talking to someone, it is an, it is extremely draining. So a day when I have three calls scheduled, I will not get anything else done because that's it. Those three hours that I'm in calls, that's essentially all I can produce that day. Like I will sit in my office for eight hours and I will, you know, tinker with stuff, but I'm not producing anything else. I can't use that time productively. It's those three hours. Now, the last two days I haven't had any calls and I've worked nine or 10 hours a day and I feel great, right? Like I'm I'm writing, I'm editing, I'm thinking, I'm reading. Doesn't drain me at all. You know, just not at all. Um, but as soon as I add in any kind of work where I am masking, where I'm engaging in any form of affective or emotional labor, um, where there is an expectation of how I'm going to show up in that time, that stuff drains me really, really fast. And so I think, you know, that's going to be different for every person. And that's that's sort of a that's a really big part of how I think about capacity is we all have access to a different set of resources and to different amounts of resources, right? I have access to a particular set of resources that allows me to produce, you know, a 6,000 word article every week. Um, most people don't have access to that particular set of resources I have come to find out. But a lot of people have access to resources that allow them to do more client work, to network more, to have meetings with team members that I simply do not have. My capacity for that is extremely low. And if I'm not careful about that, then I'm going to, I get tired and I get burnt out. Um, just as someone who is, you know, working 14 hours a day is going to, right? And so we have to recognize 
what are all the different levers of that capacity that we can pull or push in order to decide what we take on? And so in terms of how it impacts my goal setting and my planning and the projects that I decide to take on, I know that I can push big goals on anything that doesn't have to be uh, relational, right? So the idea of taking on five clients right now makes me want to go to bed. Actually, it doesn't make me want to go to bed. It just makes me want to cry. <laughs> but the idea of, say, writing another book next year, I'm like, no problem. I got all, Game on. all the resources for that. Um, and so that that's how I think about that is like, what am I going to say yes to that is within the capacity that I have, that's within the resources I have access to. And the other thing that I've been really thinking about and playing with um, is something that I've known for a while now, but I've just sort of articulated it more clearly, which is when I'm considering whether something is a yes or a no, I have stopped asking myself whether I can squeeze it in and started asking myself whether I have the resources to do it well. Do I have the resources to invest in this thing so that I can produce to my own expectations, to the client's expectations, um, and in a way that's satisfying to me too? Um, and so I've been doing that the last few years, and I am more satisfied with my work than I have ever been because I just don't do anything anymore that I don't have the resources for. Thank you for all of this. And what there's a couple of threads that are coming up for me. First is to make sure that we're not comparing our capacity to somebody else's. You really, in your book, get granular on developing our own capacity awareness. And mm -hmm. I've been hanging out with you for a long time. So I've been gleaning on this for a while. So I've had one of those in like not saying really, really exceptionally full weeks where I have over 40 hours of FaceTime on the screen. Oh, dear not God. my normal. <laughs> right. And but what I know, right. And, but one of the things that I was raised on is if you can squeeze it in, it was never about quality. It was about quantity. And so even knowing I had a big week coming up with just some different things with trainings and work and onboarding things, that was important. And with the holidays coming up, it just got tight. I set in different things around my life so I can make sure I had the emotional capacity and also be able to deliver quality. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't thought about that before. And I hear so many people saying, well, look at, you know, look at Tara or look at you, Rebecca, you can do all this stuff. And then we compare to someone else's nervous system, their story, their capacity, and then we turn on ourselves. And then there's a thread that weaves into this intersection of hashtag vulnerability confidence culture. I'm just going to put perform. I'm just going to keep pushing through until I can't. There's no interrogation versus there's still this also we're in a culture that doesn't want us to interrogate that and say, no, that doesn't work for me, but here's what does. Like I'm telling you, you can negotiate this, whether it's in your job or on your team. Like you don't have to keep doing things this way because it always was this way because eventually something's going to give. And if you lose your choice, it's going to be dark. Yeah. It's going to go dark. Yeah. One of the questions I think that's really important to to any kind of analysis like this is who does this benefit? 
right? So all of this vulnerability stuff we kind of talked about, it benefits the powers that be economically speaking, and it benefits social media companies. It doesn't actually benefit us. Um, That have to squeeze it in. If you can squeeze it in, then you must do it kind of mentality. That doesn't benefit you. That benefits nope. your employer. It benefits, you know, the capital, just capital, capital C, with a capital C, that's who it benefits or what it benefits. It does not benefit you. What benefits you is staying within your capacity and doing things well or doing. And when I say well, I don't mean like I don't have a particular like idea of what something done well looks like, that's an individual choice, right? What are you proud of? What's important to you? What do you value in the outcome of a a project? That's what benefits us because when we are in a place where we feel satisfied, confident, um, and proud of the work that we're doing, we are in a better position to think critically about everything else in our lives. Our critical mm-hmm. thinking starts to shut down when we are in a place of urgency, in a place of precarity, and in a place of feeling uh, less than worthy, less than valuable, less than useful. And everything in our culture is designed to keep us in that state. And so the best thing we can do to resist that is to say yes only to that which we can do well with the capacity that we have at that moment. And so I, I just, this was church for me right now, what you just said. I'm like just <laughs> waving my hands in the air. Um, lots of amens to that. Hashtag yes. used to be a pastor. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, I, I think this is so key. And, and what I want to say to anyone listening, saying I can't do that. I have to keep pushing through. It's even just starting to interrogate. That is so important because I was trained that you squeeze it in. And if you say no, you're a slacker. I mean, maybe that's just mm-hmm. the Minnesota culture. Um, no, that's the, American culture. American culture. You know, it, it is just that that Protestant work ethic piece. Mm-hmm. But it was very much you were looked down upon if you took a lengthy lunch, you know, and all of those things. And so I think what you're saying is to recognize we can't give up our agency. We have to reclaim it. And maybe you don't realize we've given it up. And, and sometimes people, I mean, and maybe just even taking back a sliver of it by just starting to interrogate this and questioning it. And I love the reminder of who is this benefiting to? What can I do? Can I do this well if I squeeze it in and who's benefiting? And, and the piece too that I was never really taught that I could be satisfied with my work isn't just mm-hmm. based on my ambition or my bank account, <laughs> but I could actually be satisfied. I mean, I start, I, I've always done things I've loved overall, but there's aspects of all the jobs I've had that I'm like, ugh, like for all of us. But to really start to be satisfied, I think at least with generations above, I'm a Gen Xer, there was like job satisfaction. That's no, you show up and do it. And and so I think for folks, depending on your age, that particularly that that's a space that I think it's okay. We don't have to be like loving everything. That's not the point. But to feel a sense of alignment um, and that we're doing something good and we're contributing. I think that is so important. 
Yeah, and I think you make a really good point there that satisfaction is not the same thing as enjoyment. Satisfaction is not the same thing as loving what you do. Satisfaction is not the same thing as having fun at work, right? Having fun at work, loving what you do, those things actually, again, benefit the systems rather than you. They are trade-offs, they are compromises that keep you at work longer, allow you to work for less pay, allow you to work with fewer benefits. We have traded those things for quote unquote, loving what we do. Satisfaction is knowing that we've done what we can do to the best of our ability or to the ability that we have the resources for and it is it is a prof it is a profoundly philosophically different thing than fun passion enjoyment loving what you do um and i think in that way satisfaction can be applied across the board in life and work right anything you can do you can do in a satisfying way doesn't mean you're gonna like it doesn't mean you know cleaning the house is suddenly going to be this activity that is now just top of your list right because you just love it because you're just so satisfied by it now i don't like to clean i try to clean as little as possible but i can look back on it and say i did that well that was satisfying good job me that's really empowering and it's really uh, it is a form of resistance that Ooh. i don't yeah that i don't think that we give enough credit to oh i love that i love that tara i we could talk for hours and um i hope that you do come back i'm sure there's more we can talk about but i'd love to wrap up our conversation with some traditional quick fire questions that i ask you game yes i'm gonna try okay <laughs> What what are you reading right now? What am I reading right now? I am finishing up a set of short stories by Ted Chang called Exhalation. And I am also reading a book by an author named Elaine Castillo called How to Read Now, um, which is sort of looking at culture generally and, and kind of... Um, well, interrogating how we read that culture. Where are we missing uh, sort of the things that are hidden? Where are we inserting our experience when we really need to be centering other experiences, things like that? Wow, good stuff. I'm telling you, my book list is as big as this because of you. I'm thankful, but man, <laughs> I have like got my nose in a book on most of it. It's a Tara McMullen recommendation. What song are you playing on repeat right now? I am not listening to a lot of music right now. Um, so this one is tough. Oh, I, I will just throw out that I, um, have a guilty pleasure of Dave Matthews band. And so this whole year, I've sort of been revisiting my Dave Matthews band and, um, enjoying that immensely. I just saw him in concert live and it was amazing. Oh, it damn. It took me a month to re <laughs> recover though. Um, <laughs> Best TV show or movie you've seen recently? Um, this is a tough one. Uh, so in terms of new shows, uh, Sean and I are both really enjoying The Serpent Queen, which is a Stars original about Catherine uh, Medici. Mm. And it's just, it's kind of that fun, like self-aware period drama um, where there's some like breaking of the fourth wall and there's contemporary music and stuff like that. Um, 
So we're enjoying that. And then we're almost through all six seasons of Vikings, which I did not think that I was going to like, but we have become very big fans of that show. And uh, and I would definitely recommend it to anyone who, again, enjoys sort of period drama stuff. My husband's been trying to get me to watch that. So maybe I'll reconsider. All right. Good to know. Lots of strong female characters. Oh, even better. Even better. Yeah. Now, I know you're millennials, but I'm, I'm wondering if you have any favorite 80s pop culture movie shows that you love. <laughs> I had to look this up to make sure that it was, in fact, produced in the 80s. But I'm going to say The Princess Bride. Yes, that's, that is definitely a guest favorite when I ask this question. <laughs> <laughs> for good reason. For darn good yeah. reason. <laughs> what is an unpopular opinion that you hold? Oh, um... I'm going to steal one that I used on a podcast interview last night, which is that um, that there's no such thing as healthy food. Mm. Uh, and that, you know, when we use the word health, we are more often talking about morality than we're talking about health. And with food, yes. that is across the board true. And so insidious and toxic. Thank you for that. Who or what inspires you to be a better leader and human? I think it's hard to pick out an individual. But what I will say is the authors that I read, the podcast hosts that I listen to, almost all of them are former academics turned journalists or sort of public intellectuals turned, uh, you know, sort of micromedia brands. And they inspire me to be a better leader in human because of the questions that they ask. Um, and one of the things that I've really been working on this year is asking better questions, uh, looking for the question that's not being asked, um, and how that intersects with my own leadership and my own sense of self. Um, and the, the, those people who are asking interesting questions from interesting perspectives really have inspired me to do that in new ways. It makes me think of something you said to me at the beginning of our work together with the podcast, where you say, in order to create good content, you need to consume good content. That's a paraphrase of what you said. But yeah, that really lands. That really lands. Tara, where can people find you if they want to connect with you and your work? Yeah, so um, all of my work is sort of centered at explorewhatworks.com. The book is at explorewhatworks.com slash book. And you can listen to the What Works podcast wherever you listen to The Unburdened Leader. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today, Tara. This was a truly an honor and I really appreciate it. And I'm so excited for your book to get into people's hands and more people to be exposed to your important writings and worldview. So thank you. Thank you. This was vulnerability was a topic I've been wanting to talk about for a long time. And this was a perfect opportunity. So thank you for that. I love this quote by Brene Brown about true vulnerability. Vulnerability sounds like truth and feels like courage. Truth and courage aren't always comfortable, but they're never weakness. And hashtag vulnerability often thrives in the space between the vulnerability that we are drawn to in others, but also fear in showing ourselves. But we also know that vulnerability is an essential tool in leadership today. And this requires deep inner work, time, patience, trust, and connection. 
And as Tara McMullender reminded us today, hashtag vulnerability can lead to some important metric boosts, but it does not deepen real connection, only a false sense of intimacy and can even do harm by further burdening people to be vulnerable when there's not capacity nor community to hold it with care. So what support do you need to cultivate more true vulnerability in your life and work? What role does vulnerability have in how you cultivate culture and promote your work? And when have you felt true vulnerability? And when have you defaulted to hashtag vulnerability? Vulnerability is an invitation and a daily practice. It never exploits and it always connects with care. And if you commit to true vulnerability, you commit to the deeper work to increase your capacity for discomfort so you can cultivate spaces for hard conversations instead of taking the shortcut of hashtag vulnerability. And this is the work of an unburdened leader. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Unburdened Leader. If this episode was particularly impactful to you, I'd be honored if you went ahead and left a review and rated it and shared it with someone who you think would benefit from it. And you can find this episode, show notes, free Unburdened Leader resources, and sign up for the weekly Unburdened Leader email, along with finding ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com. 